0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Ken Wong, freshly retired from a 40-year career as professor of marketing at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University in Kingston. Ken first walked through the doors of the business school in 1971, and with a few brief exceptions, never really left. He got his BCom there. He got his MBA there. He went on to an esteemed 40-year teaching career there. He was the principal architect of the first full-time degree program in Canada to operate completely outside of government subsidies. He is an inductee into the Canadian Marketing Hall of Legends, and he is listed in both the Canadian and international versions of the who's who of business professionals. Even your host, a graduate from the rival Western Business School, can grudgingly agree that Ken Wong is truly a marketing legend. Welcome, Ken, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are
1: you? Uh, I'm in Kingston, Ontario, and I'm uh, very, very well. We're enjoying a lovely day here. Well, I'm going to
0: start with the obvious. After an almost uninterrupted 50 years on the lovely campus of Queen's University in the lovely city of Kingston, what is Ken Long up to in retirement, and is there a bucket list?
1: You know, I've I've been very fortunate uh, in many respects in this life, and one of them is that uh, I've pretty well gotten to do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. Uh, so there is no big bucket list. But uh, as you can imagine, whenever you're involved in uh, heavily in a professional career, you have to give up some things. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to spending a little more time with family, uh, a little more time doing some things for the the community around here, and of course, playing a little more golf.
0: Well, there you go. Matt, you wouldn't be a retiree if you weren't golfing. Yeah, that's right. Let's please go all the way back. Get the Ken Wong story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing.
1: Wow. Well, it's a great question because it really, it really is a, a huge part of, of my life story. I was born in Montreal, 1953, and uh, so that makes me, what, 70 years old today? And, and I was born in Chinatown, uh, inner city Montreal, of, uh, of two very hardworking parents uh, of mixed ethnic background. Uh, so I am half Chinese. I have two grandfathers who are Chinese. I am a grandmother from uh, uh, Marseille, France, and I have another grandmother who was from Liverpool, England, uh, which makes me half Chinese, a quarter French, an eighth English, and an eighth Irish. <laughs> that uh, is a mix. <laughs> as, as I tell audiences today, uh, I was EDI long before EDI was popular. <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> yes, you were. But, um, you know, I, I really, I, I think my story does reflect the story of a lot of immigrants. Um, I, I am second generation. My parents were the first generation born. My father uh, and mother, uh, when they got married after the war, uh, they really didn't have much. And, uh, and my father and mother both had to leave school, depression era kids. Uh, so they had to leave school to support their families. And so I think my father completed grade eight. That was, that was it. So you can imagine after the war, he comes back, wants to get a job how many jobs are available to an an Asian, especially at that time, because they had, you know, they weren't considered full citizens of the country. Uh, we still had uh, the emancipation to, to, to come. Uh, so what kind of employment was available to him? Not much. He, he was a waiter in Chinatown. And uh, my mother, as fit to the social in, and the social climate of the time, of course, she was home taking care of the kids. One day, my father and his uh, older sister got together, and they were commiserating about the, the dead-end jobs that they had and concluded they had to start a company. And so they took uh, what I believe was $200 at the time. They, they bought some products. My father, because he'd been a waiter, decided that egg rolls, he noticed that all these people were buying egg rolls. And so he said, well, let's, let's become an egg roll company. And and so they made up a batch of egg rolls. And then my my father, no embellishment here, uh, took some shirt cardboard, a box of crayons, uh, a pair of scissors, and he, uh, he dummied up a box. And then he went to see a gentleman named Sam Steinberg, uh, the head of the Steinberg grocery chain. Sam Steinberg was the Dave Nichols of his time. Uh, I can imagine my father sitting in in Steinberg's office with this, uh, this cut up uh, uh, box of, of, of egg rolls, talking about uh, his company and what he was going to do to create it. And, Steinberg, for whatever reason, took pity on him and uh, said, well, we'll give you one store, and one store became three, three became 10. And eventually, over the, the years, they became the largest processor of Chinese food in the country. Wow. We'll with just over 100 million in sales, about 150 employees. And they really did run it like a family. But it really did show me what you could do. If you wanted to be entrepreneurial, if you wanted to step outside the the conventional bounds a little bit work a little bit harder, and that you know things like running a business like a family didn't have to be a cliche. That you really wow. could do this, and that if you did it, the rewards were very real. You know, we had eight attempts at unionization, and none of them got past the first stage mm. because the employees basically said, "We can't do any better than we're doing now." So all of this really set the stage for my professional career, and then. Um, my parents wanted me, of course, to go to university. They didn't know what university was. And uh, with all respect to your alma mater and mine, uh, when you grow up in Montreal's inner city, university means McGill. So they, they couldn't figure out what I had to do, but they knew I had to go to a good school. So they put together their pennies, and they sent me off to a semi-private school called Layola. The significance of which is that Layola is run by Jesuits. And uh, for those of you who don't know anything about Jesuits, Jesuits are like God's SWAT team. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they they are rebellious. Uh, they don't like rules. Uh, they do conform to the basic tenets of the religion. For example, the Virigan's were the first first people to oppose the Vietnam War in the states. They were Jesuits. So that that's the nature of beast. And uh, and they had a huge influence on me because uh, as I as I tell my dean. You know, when I step at a line, don't blame me, blame the Jesuits, because that's how I was trained to be. (laughs) Ken, I have to ask you, what was the name of the company your father started? Wong Wing Food Products. And they operated until uh, the uh, late 1990s, at which point we were sold to the McCain Corporation. Uh, All of the seniors were were moving on, and uh, none of us wanted to step into the business. We had all established ourselves in our own careers as often happens in family businesses. And uh, proud to say that uh, we are, I I believe, the only acquisition McCain ever made where they retained the brand name. Wow. Well, I suspect that's because McCain's egg rolls doesn't sound... That doesn't sound as good. No. Well, But but the company had 26 products in line by the end.
0: Well, clearly, Ken, your immersion in business came early as you basically sat through 365 board meetings a year, these being family dinners that... Would have been focused on the family business. Is that where you kind of got the core of your being? That business was what you wanted to do, and perhaps marketing was the discipline within that that you wanted to focus on.
1: Well, so definitely business. That that that's I, I lived off the wisdom gained at those board meetings, and, and as I often say, uh, you know, the, the, they were funny because they would argue. Uh, they were siblings, and, and and at times they got a little dysfunctional. And so they would scream and shout and pound the table and call each other names and so on, but at the end of the meeting, they would stand up, hug, kiss, and, and remain united. The next day, they'd go back as family. And I can remember thinking, as a te- as a teenager, that's how I want to have a meeting. I want people to be honest and open and 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 uh, uh, and show some emotion in what they say. But at the end of the day, I want them to come away saying, "All right." Meeting's over, decisions made. Now let's all get behind it. Yeah. So that had a, a, a big, big influence on me. And then, and, uh, to be honest, I think sometimes they can be a little bit of a bull in a china shop because I expect others to also think that way. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, my wife does, but, but I'm not sure everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's who matters. That's who matters. Appreciates it. When it comes to marketing, um, I read. To be honest, you know, I didn't know there was a field called marketing until I came to Queens. Uh, I knew there was advertising, of course, but I didn't know about marketing. But I do remember uh, the the class where it all came uh, came together. Uh, it was taught by a fellow named Carl Lawrence, and Carl was this uh, larger-than-life figure, six foot six, flaming red hair, and uh, and he was colorblind. So you never knew what kind of sartorial expression you were going to see in the classroom the next day. But Carl was also an excellent golfer. And one day, as as an assignment, uh, he said, I have to give a talk to this golf course. And at the time, tennis was on the upsurge. This was the day of Chris Everett and Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe and so on. And so, of course, everyone was flocking to tennis and away from golf. And so the golf course brought Carl in to to advise them on what to do differently. And so after putting us through this assignment, he told us the so-called right answer, what he said. And his speech started, he said, you may think the competition is other golf courses. You may think we need to improve our greens or improve our club or what have you. He said, the competition isn't golf courses. The competition is for people's discretionary time you're losing that time to tennis. And so the real question is, what is there about tennis that golf needs to improve upon or at least emulate? And the moment he said it, I uh, I can still recall the feeling at that time we called it a rush. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it certainly sets you kind of on a path. And and I do want to talk to you about business schools. Ken, I can't even imagine to begin... Uh, to imagine the changes you've seen in business school education, not only in the curriculum, but in the methodology of teaching. An obvious one is that when you were a student, you literally used a pencil and a notebook, whereas today's students probably don't even carry a writing instrument.
1: Well, uh, certainly the the technology has changed. uh, And I can't say the number of times I myself have thought, wow, I would have rocked high school if there had been the Internet. Yeah, Not a lot. You know, how much time do we spend in libraries poring over uh, reference text trying to find something to say? And, and of course, we're on the verge of another big one now with AI and ChatGPT, which has all of us terribly worried because uh, we can give a great assignment and just end up finding at the beginning a ChatGPT in response.
0: I can interrupt you right there, Ken, if you don't mind, because I, I literally wanted to ask about that, the rise of AI, the availability of tools like ChatGPT, has this been a positive or a negative when it comes to teaching at university?
1: If we continue to teach the way we've always taught, it will decidedly be a negative. If however we're prepared to adapt to this new technology, it can be a massive positive. And, I, and I'll give you an example. I don't know if if you can recall when calculators became popular. And everybody worried that the world would learn, would forget how to do arithmetic and, and so on. Well, the reality is, perhaps there were some who didn't learn the mechanics of addition and subtraction and so on. But you know what? They weren't going to learn it anyways. So a calculator was giving them a capability they didn't have before. For those who were talented in the quantitative uh, sciences, It didn't matter whether they had a calculator or not, they were gonna learn the rudiments because they were gonna take it to the next stage. The important thing was that people learned what to do with the numbers that were coming off that calculator. The important thing was that people knew what numbers to submit to the calculator. And the same exists with ChatGPT. You know, I can ask the same question three, four different ways and get three or four different responses from, from my AI software. So I have to know this. I have to be able to appreciate the subtleties of how I ask the question in order to appreciate whether or not I'm getting the right answer. I also have to be sensitive to what database the AI software is using to draw upon because its response is only as good as the underlying data. So again, it's a different set of skills we have to teach. There are still things to learn. It's just not the same things that we taught and learned in the past. Well,
0: tied in with that, Ken, most people associate a business school education with technical skills like research, valuation, internal rates of return, but today these can arguably be obtained anywhere, particularly over the internet. Thus, I know you've encouraged your students to go beyond the theory of business to matter or master the practice of business. Does that put more of a premium on our people skills?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, you asked earlier about my intent to to study marketing. I didn't come to school to study marketing. I came to learn how to run a business. And in particular, I came to learn how to run a big business because I had already had been exposed to a smaller business. And what I discovered along the way, very early on, and again, uh, compliments to my father here. Uh, I'll tell you about that story in a minute. What I came to realize was that the biggest difference was the number of people that you had to influence, the number of people you had to motivate, um, because as you increase the number of people, you invariably increase the diversity of your audience. And that means the same message has to be has to be delivered in multiple ways. And that is, of course, the heart of marketing, isn't it? We segment a market, we figure out what's right for each segment, and we deliver the message accordingly. And, and so in many regards, um, you know when I think about running a a company, I, I think about internal marketing as kind of the essence of management because we do have to understand retirees aren't going to be the same as 20-somethings. Uh, you know, people from disadvantaged backgrounds aren't going to be the same as those from advantaged backgrounds and so on. And uh, accordingly, anything I decide as a as an owner or as a manager is going to have different consequences for different audiences. And if I'm not sensitive to that, then I really can't expect my troops to feel any desire to be loyal to me. And in the end, that's that's really what you want. You know, we don't go the extra mile for somebody we don't like. For sure. And I think
0: tied into this is kind of this concept of the academic ivory tower versus the real world. Ken, how would you straddle these two worlds? How did you keep in touch and up to speed with the most current business management practices?
1: Well, I think uh, part of this is, is, is how I position myself as an academic you know when we talk about research everybody thinks that we're talking about certainty that when i when if somebody says the research says this everyone expects that 100 percent of the time or close to it that's what's going to happen the reality is in social research like business research you know you get something that that takes place 40 50 60 percent of the time you've got a major finding mm-hmm that means 40% of the time, 50% of the time, 60% of the time, it's not going to happen. And so I've always positioned myself as the person who tried to communicate not just what the research said, but, but the things that you had to watch out for. What wouldn't make that apply? Or, or what exceptions to the rule would apply? And and I think that's why media well, I had some success with talking to media Because they would always come in with the, well, the research says this. Does it apply in this instance? And many times, of course, it didn't. So again, when I look at it, I I always look at it from that perspective. And I always try to, to finish my evaluation of any framework with the people side of the equation. What's it mean for the manager?
0: Well, let's talk about the Canadian media. Because whenever they need an expert take on a marketing issue, they would go to one of two experts from academia it would either be Ken Wong from the Smith School at Queens or Alan Middleton from Shulick at York. Alan Middleton beat you to retirement. In your heyday, was he a friend, enemy, or
1: frenemy? Uh, Alan was, uh, first of all, Alan is a wonderful, wonderful person. When I started to gain some notoriety, uh, Alan was the only uh, only source of media. You constantly saw his name. He actually took the first step, I, I think it was, and he contacted me, and uh, we were just talking in general. But I think by the end of the talk, we came to the conclusion there was a huge opportunity here for, for people with marketing backgrounds to, to uh, educate the public and, and, and business, and uh, there was really no reason for us to, to become competitors. Uh, the market was big enough to accommodate us both. And we spent the rest of our career supporting each other. Alan hired me at times, and I hired Alan at times. Uh, And whenever we couldn't do something, we were always quick to refer the other. Because, at least on my part, I I had just an intrinsic trust in Alan. Mm. He he is a man of impeccable integrity. He had all kinds of real-world experience. And uh, and he was, at the end of the day, a, a true educator. And uh, I have the greatest, greatest respect for Alan. Well, certainly, as they say, a
0: rising tide floats all boats. So it's nice to hear you're supportive of each other. And I'm pretty sure I can guess the answer to this already, Ken. As we get into the nitty gritty of the business school marketplace, are you friends, enemies, or frenemies with rival business schools such as Western, U of T? I already know what your answer is going to be.
1: So we are, uh, we are, we are friendly enemies. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: that's what I figured.
1: This way. But to be honest with you, you know, uh, obviously uh, our single greatest rivalry historically as a business school w- was with Western. Uh, and, and we used to tease each other all the time. You know, Western isn't that an omelet, that kind of that kind of thing. <laughs> Jeffrey Gantz, uh, who was the head of your MBA, pro- the MBA program at Western, but I think before that he was a, a labor negotiator at Western. Before that he was a sales guy, interesting enough. He used to teach at Queen's in the summertime in our three-week executive program. And so I got to know Jeffrey uh, on, a, on a personal level. When we announced our intent to go with the, uh, the full-fee MBA, this was a radical departure. Uh, not just because it was full-fee, but because it was also specialized on science and technology business. So the idea was, we're a small school, we can't compete against the Harvards of this world on everything so let's just bite off a chunk, concentrate our limited resources there, and, and, and away we go. I took more flack. I remember going to a Canadian association, the Canadian federation of business school deans. There were 27 of them in the room, and I think 26 of them took a strip off my back about being the thin edge of the wedge and how I was endangering the public education, blah, 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 blah. When we opened that day, there was a, uh, a bouquet of flowers and a telegram from Jeffrey Gans, Classy Classy, classy God, saying, uh, uh, "We welcome vigorous competition. We know now that we're getting some students that would be better suited to you, and vice versa. No reason why we can't both coexist." Uh, I've never forgotten that. That. Uh, that uh, that act and, and, and tried to conduct myself with as much class as Jeffrey showed that day. Um, it, it, really was a, it really was a turning point, I think, in our relationship. And, uh, you know, as much as I would kid about Western and so on, I've always said it, it is an outstanding school. And it's an outstanding school because it gets outstanding students. I mean, at the end of the day, if you think about Queens or Western, our faculties, we're all trained in the same places. We're all reading the same books. We're all going to the same conferences and so on. You know, Some may be better in the classroom than others, certainly. Uh, but by and large, you're getting the same education. A big differentiator is the quality of the students that come in. As we say at Queens, as long as we don't damage them emotionally or physically, they're going to go on to do great things. That's okay? good. It's just the nature.
0: Well, in my day as a business undergrad, the big distinction was that Western followed the case study method used at Harvard, whereas Queens used more of a lecture-based model. Is there still a discernible difference between the teaching methodologies
1: at the various business schools, whether it's Western Queens or otherwise? Not really. Not really. I, I, I mean, Western still retains its, its uh, like Harvard, uh, still retains its reputation for using the case method. But the reality is everybody is using cases these days. And, and as somebody who did their doctoral studies at Harvard, I can tell you now that, that every summary of a case discussion invariably involves a little bit of a lecture from the professor, right? So we've always had this mixed mode. The thing we have to appreciate, especially now if you think back to your question about technology, is that one size doesn't have to fit all you know, if you're talking about a strategy situation or a, 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 an implementation of a, of a policy uh, situation, you can't beat a case study. You have to take the context of personalities into consideration. And, and to be honest with you, because there is no right or wrong, no empirical proof that this is the right way to go, what's really important is that you listen to your classmates. Because ultimately, they're going to give you the universe of possibilities, and you can decide for yourself what's right or wrong. And as we used to tell students, in fact, pay close attention because one day that could be your competition, (laughs) (laughs) you know what they're thinking. For sure. At the same time, though, if I'm teaching you statistics, if I'm teaching you the basic elements of bookkeeping, a case method doesn't add anything. Case method is just a problem set. It's like the back of the chapter. Uh, questions in a math book. You know, their lecture is much more effective because I can cover much more ground. And of course, in some cases, you're going to use a mixed mode of both. Now, the same applies with technology. We just got through the pandemic, and of course, we had to do remote instruction. In some cases, again, the more technical, mechanical courses, whether I watch it on the internet, whether I sit in the classroom you know, checking my emails while I listen to the lecture. It it doesn't really matter. Um, it, it's all the same, but when you want that richness of discussion or when your prop has been taught how to teach and, and, and that's when I say how to teach, I'm talking about the use of body language teaching at its highest level is a performance art. It, it is, it is you are occupying a stage and. Everything you do in that stage helps you communicate or not communicate the message. Harvard was so wonderful in teaching us that. Student starts talking too much. What do you do? Approach them. Walk up to them. Look down at them. They'll shut up. It's intimidating. You don't have to say a word. You know, you're taught these little these little tricks. You can't do that on, um, in a remote discussion, and so part of that art is lost. So, again, case method versus lecture just depends on the situation. The reality is you should be able to do both, and both do require a different type of training. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, most doctoral programs don't give that training.
0: If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. we got the King of Bay Street West Hall. Canadian Ambassador to the United Nations Bob Ray, former CFL Commissioner Mark Cohan, Kit Corpse David Cinnamon, and sports executives Bob Stellick, Bob Hunter, and Bob Richardson. How they did it? Directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, in addition to the you know, move towards virtual versus in-person I've also seen a big change, certainly since I graduated, the growth of the off-campus campus, campus. i.e. get your Queen's education not at the home Kingston campus, but at the Toronto campus or even an international campus. How are you getting the Queen's Business School experience if you aren't actually attending in Kingston?
1: So first of all, uh, uh, we've always had this problem in Kingston. In fact, so so did Western to a certain extent being in London. We all feared Toronto. uh, It was the sleeping giant. Uh, And, you know, it wasn't until just recently that Toronto has gotten their act together, to be frank with you. And and Toronto is now a a huge, huge force as a business school. Uh, You know, Roger Martin did a wonderful, wonderful job when he became their dean in in elevating their reputation and, and status. But they had this huge locational advantage being in Toronto, in the heart of the financial district and so on. Whereas, you know, we wanted to bring a guest speaker in, uh, that guest speaker had to be prepared to spend three hours getting two kinks and three hours getting back uh, in order to live 90 minutes in a classroom. Uh, It it was difficult. And so we started with video conferencing. That's why we became one of the leading video conference schools in in the world, frankly, not just in Canada, but in the world, Uh, was an attempt to overcome that boundary. Uh, our first venture was, I believe, in Ottawa, uh, doing programs for the public service, uh, which at that time was looking to infuse their public service with more management talent. And so we put a facility in Ottawa. It proved to be extremely successful, and so we've replicated that in, in other places. Whether we do these, uh, these programs, though, via video conference or or whether they are primarily done on the, uh, on the facility in the host city, Uh, they always involve a residential period here at Queen's. Mm. And uh, that residential period is intense, not just in in the studies, but we're really trying to bring them together as a group. Uh, We're trying to let them experience the, the Queen, what we consider the Queen's experience through it. And even though we may not be, you know, in the same building and just down the hall from your classroom, we do try to let our students know, if you need to reach us, we're here. In, in fact, uh, the last thing I, I say to every class is uh, I hold up a stack of business cards, and I, I ask, uh, I say, you can take one, but if you do, you must put it in your lower right hand desk drawer. A- and uh, they all kind of look at me quizzically, and I say, now you got to tell me, you know, where are you going to put it. <laughs> so they all say, on mass and lower right hand desk drawer. And he's flipping. out. you know, it's a good thing he's retiring. <laughs> And I say, now here's why. Some point in time, you're going to need this material. You're going to have a problem. um, You're not going to know what to do. You're going to need to talk to somebody. Whenever that happens, you pick up the phone. You can call anybody in this class. You can call anybody in the Queen School of Business and say, how do I get in touch with Ken Wong? And they'll tell you, just look in your lower right-hand desk drawer. Then you'll find my business card and so on. We really do try to stress this with a, with all of our faculty. I mean, obviously, I, I do it my way. Other people do it their way, but we do try to create that sense of community because without that, you don't have any networking. You don't have an alumni network. And well, think about it: when we go to business school, we're going for a career. You know, it's it's not it's not the kind of education for life that that many would would think university should be. And, and part of our attraction, what makes a good business school, is we get good jobs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, tied in with this idea of networking and community, I have to ask you about business school branding. And I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a dim bulb in, in not understanding this because everyone's gone this way. Why have business schools pivoted so sharply to rebranding their faculties as being distinct from their more established and more well-known university brands? For example, graduates used to say they got their business degrees from Queens or Western or U of T or York, and now they're pushed or rather obligated to say they got them from Smith or Ivy or Rotman or Schulich. I would postulate, and yes, I had to look up that word to find a good one to use, these schools already had much stronger brands when they were directly associated with their longtime established universities. For example, when you got a a business degree from Queen's or Western, you said that, it immediately meant something. Whereas I'm not confident saying you got it from Smith or Ivy is as impactful, especially outside of Canada. Why have business schools abandoned their university branding to focus instead on their specific school branding?
1: Okay. So first of all, but let's be clear, uh, the desire for naming rights uh, came down to money. In Canada, one of the best things about uh, postgraduate, post-secondary education is that it's considered a public good in many respects. The bad news is that because of that, we operate at a considerable disadvantage relative to our U.S. counterparts. And, and I'll give you a, a, a simple example. Harvard Business School has an endowment of, when I last checked, it was something like $1.2 billion. Queens University, at, at the same during the same time period, had an operating budget of, I think it was two hundred and fifty million million. This was some time ago now, numbers, but the proportions haven't changed. So Harvard's business school is four times larger than my parent corporation. And if I look at my budget in running a, a, an MBA program, that makes me the equivalent of basically out-of-stock product from my competition. It's, it's just minuscule. And the government, uh, universities are are very egalitarian. You know, knowledge is knowledge. We don't put a value on knowledge based on anything other than its knowledge. So, you know, uh, a university cannot be seen to spend more on its business school than it does on, say, its romance languages. Similarly, you know, while there could be some market differential, you can't pay a business school prof appreciably more than you pay somebody who is a prof in Latin. Market values change, but that doesn't matter. It, it's a different kind of beast. So when naming rates went out, and, and you know, uh, Ivy went for, I think, 26 million. Queens went, uh, well, of course, we're twice as good. So we went for 50 million. Uh, I was waiting for you to slip something in. I'm glad you did. I'm sorry, Andrew. It had to happen. Um, You know, it really did come down to to money uh, because money lets you buy technology. Money lets you get more faculty and and so on. That said, uh, I can also tell you, though, that in many cases, what we discovered was that because business schools had access to business and because media had so much interest in business, Oftentimes, what started it was business schools drew their reputation from their associated university. All of a sudden, and it started probably around the 1980s, I think it was, uh, all of a sudden we started to find that universities were drawing their reputation largely from their professional schools. So, with all due respect to Western, and it is a great place, I mean, I uh, their psych department is fabulous. I, I know that because I took psychometrics courses from them. <laughs> At the same time, you know, what are they known for? Law school, business school, medical school. Queens is no different. All of these, it just happens to be the way society works. And so it made great sense uh, to, to, have, um, to have somebody uh, who was prepared to put up some money to endow the school. Now, two things have happened. First of all, it's no longer a situation where somebody just gives you a bucket of money and says, go have fun. The SMART programs, Ivy did this, and certainly it was the case at Queens. We, we, we accepted the money, but there were very specific conditions. Not so much in being forced to teach a certain thing or anything else. Uh, but for example, in our case, a certain amount of that money had to be stipulated for scholarships. A certain amount of that money had to be stipulated for faculty, uh, faculty development, and and so on. So these donors these days they're not just looking for a tax write off. Uh, in many cases, you know, they've gone to university, they've saw what was good and what was bad, and uh, they're putting their money where their mouth is. So so certainly that's happened. And the second thing that's happened is we're not completely disavowing ourselves. So technically, I work for the. S. J. Uh, Smith's School of Business at Queens University. Uh, we're, we're trying to trade on, on on both brands, put it that way. Uh, but okay. no question, we still have as Smith, and we've we've invested a lot of time and money in doing this, uh, in trying to create that that unique Smith identity, and, and still pay homage to our to our master brand, which is Queens.
0: Well, tied in with the business of business schools is rankings. Uh, McLean's is probably the most well-known provider of Canadian university rankings. And as you know, there are now dozens of different annual rankings of who is, quote, the best business school. Ken, how important were these business school rankings to you as a faculty member in the sense that they may or may not have been major
1: determinants to where the next wave of top students would apply? All right. So first of all, you can't ignore them. And you can't ignore them for a simple reason. You know they're being used. So you know you can stick your head in the sand and poo poo their methodology and everything else, but you do so at at, at your own peril. I've always subscribed to, to the notion that you had to win at least one. As long as you won one, you could dismiss them all with a seeming like sour grapes, right? Very true. But but you know the reality is you really cannot. Um, and I'm I'm talking now in all seriousness. You cannot let yourself be led by the surveys because each survey evaluates you on a different basis. So, for example, there was a, a survey that, that had a, uh, I think it was a 10% weighting uh, based upon uh, the number of PhDs you had, uh, and secondly, another 10% was on the number of females that you had on in, in faculty. Well, the program that I was running at the time was the MBA for Science and Technology, What was really happening in the field wasn't happening in academia because there's a lag between what happens in the business world and what comes into the classroom, right? We can't teach it until we're sure it's real science and and so on. But in the world of technology, think about the 1990s and the dot-com era, you couldn't wait that long. You had to bring in these people from outside to teach. And at that time, STEM was still a a male-dominated area. So by any by that survey, we were dumped on. We we were I I don't know where we came in the survey, but it was certainly not not top five. By contrast, uh, Business Week, which which was basing their survey largely upon how much did the average student increase their salary post MBA. Well, now we're talking dot-com here, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm having trouble holding on to my faculty because they're watching their students going in and getting you know BMW Roadsters as signing bonuses and, and, and all kinds of options and the like. So, of course, there we came number one in the world outside the U.S. Maybe we beat IMD. We beat London Business School. We, we beat them all. As long as we won one, we <laughs> could dismiss them all. That's good. Can you have taught literally thousands of business school
0: students. Any that pop into your mind as having gone on to become celebrities or politicians
1: or titans of industry? Oh, golly. Uh, absolutely. Uh, where do I start? <laughs> um, well, you know, this is a legends broadcast. So how about uh, most recent legend uh, would be uh, Brian Pearson, uh, Loyalty One, uh, Stephen Graham, uh, who, uh, you know, was the ad person of the year in, in New York City. He was with Coke, CIBC. He's now the CEO of, of a financial concern. Gordon Nixon, of course, who was the, the head of uh, RBC uh, for, for a number of years. You look at some of the companies uh, that have been sponsored by these people, Red Flag Deals, Nick Sportswear, they're all our graduates at uh, uh, there really are too many to, to, to note. Uh, uh, Jill Nicolation, uh, you know, who is the ad person of great fame, uh, who, who absolutely shattered the glass ceiling in that industry. These people not only built businesses, but they, they did something that really reshaped the society at the same time. And, and And to me, that's the real hallmark. You know, you can make money by being lucky you can come up with a trivial pursuit it's can you come up with an encore and can you do it under a circumstance that isn't benevolent and it's in its start because boy it, it, if you really have what it takes to to make it work as an entrepreneur that sense of agility that re, that resilience that determination that survivor instinct those people are special they're they're not just smart they're 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 driven and, and and they're driven to, to create and, and make something happen. And, and you know, the, I think the greatest thing about my career has been not just the opportunity to, to be in a classroom with these folks, and I say be in a classroom as opposed to teach them because sometimes, frankly, they taught me. But the people it's brought me in touch with, the Tony Chapmans of this world, uh, David Kincaid, who is a Queens grad but in political science, you know, I mean, David brought to TSN to Canada. Uh, you know, think about the impact that has on people's daily lives. Tremendous, tremendous people in, in, in the marketing community in this country. And most all of them very willing to share.
0: Well, you touched on this already, but let's close with a really tough one. What have your students taught you as you close your Queen's Teaching chapter and move on to the next chapter of your life? Um, this is going
1: to sound a little strange. It is all a bad choice. The great students I've had, I didn't have to intimidate them. Uh, I didn't have to tell them what to do. They made a choice. Uh, they were very deliberate in, in, in thinking about life. Uh, they made a choice based on what made them happy. It didn't matter necessarily whether it made everybody else happy, but they knew it made them happy. They knew their brand. They knew what they wanted in life. And they went after it, and they went after it tooth and nail. And, you know, I think at one time I thought that was just youthful nativity. I now recognize it was something much, much more profound. And certainly as I've approached my retirement, you asked her the first question about bucket lists. I, 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 I want to do the same. I'm making deliberate choices. I just finished the project trying to help Kingston win the Memorial Cup bid for... Uh, uh, 2024. I'm going to try and help our hospitals raise a little money. I'm going to help Queens uh, do some reformulation of some of our programs. I'm going to make these deliberate choices as opposed to simply sitting down, watching some TV, and getting fat and lazy. <laughs> well, I, I had it in my question list. Are you still
0: actively engaging with industry, or would you prefer everyone? leave you alone to enjoy your retirement?
1: And clearly the answer, Ken, is you're going to stay actively involved. Oh, yeah. yeah, Retiring, not retired. <laughs> That's uh, I, absolutely. I have some clients I've been with for 20, 30 years. Um, if they still want me around. I still want to be there. Uh, I feel like part of their organization. I, I talk about them as we, not, uh, not me and you. So certainly I want to do that. And uh, let, let's face it, uh, a body in motion stays in motion. Uh, I I am only 70. Uh, I figure I got another 20, 30 years to go. At least. I want to make them productive.
0: Well, let's finish with the most important questions. Ken, do you get to keep your Queens email address and your prime parking space and your Golden Gales season tickets?
1: So I I do get my email address. Um, If you know Queens, you know that you don't get your parking permit (laughs) unless you're prepared to pay for it. Actually, that's not quite true, but somewhat true. And as for the Golden Gales, uh, no, Golden Gales, that they're, uh, uh, they're on a roll this year. We have a new stadium, new facility, new team, new optimism. Uh, I'll gladly pay to watch those guys. Excellent. And well, go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so where can we best follow you on social media or do you prefer emails? How can people best keep abreast of what you're up to and get in touch with you?
1: Sure. Uh, so the easiest way is LinkedIn. And just send me an invite. I'll, I'll certainly accept them all. And, and uh, you'll see anything I post and anything that, uh, that gets posted by others that mentions me. Uh, other than that, uh, my email address, WongK at queensu.ca. Feel free, anybody. Uh, I'm always interested in, in talking marketing, talking business. Excellent.
0: Well, I have to tell you, Ken, it's been a great pleasure to get to know you. And congratulations on uh, your retiring, not Retired, and I want to wish you continued success with whatever you pursue going forward.
1: Well, yep. the uh, pleasure's mutual, Andrew. And if ever I can be of assistance, you know how to reach me. Excellent, and I will do so. To our listeners, on behalf of Ken Wong, I am Andrew Applebaum.
0: Saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.
1: Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What she said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com. Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.